Texas recently passed a law that allows private citizens to sue anyone who performs an abortion or assists a woman in getting one. And this law targets any abortions after the detection of a fetal heartbeat. So what is wrong with this law and what are and will be its consequences? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today we'll be discussing the topic of the vigilante injustice of the Texas abortion law. Uh, I'm Agustina Vergara-Seed, a research associate at, Ayn Rand, at the Ayn Rand Institute, and with me is Ben Bayer, fellow and instructor at ARI. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Agustina. Um, so, Ben, I think it's a good idea to start uh, with a little bit of the background on the this new Texas law that, that uh, just went into effect. So I'd like to summarize some of the key facts of the law. So basically, like as I said before, this law bans uh, abortions once a doctor can detect um, cardiac activity in the fetus, which is something that usually uh, normally happens around, the, around six weeks of uh, gestation. And there's an element of novelty in, in this abortion law, but an element of novelty not in the law in general, but in abortion uh, abortions laws, that is the enforcement mechanism, uh, because it allows private citizens to bring civil suits to abortion providers that may perform like, that perform abortions, or anyone who, in in as the law puts it, uh, aids and abets a woman uh, getting an abortion. And it's interesting also that the, the, the law says that regardless of whether uh, the person that aids and abets the woman knows or should have known uh, that the woman was gonna go get an abortion. Uh, the woman in this instance cannot be sued uh, in, in this law. Uh, what's also interesting is that the claimant, so the person who brings suit against uh, uh, someone that performs an abortion or aids and abets an abortion is entitled to statutory damages of a minimum of $10,000 for each abortion that is performed by a provider or induced or assisted by someone else. And it's also interesting that the law does not uh, make an exception for pregnancies that are due to rape or incest or are also non-viable pregnancies in which uh, the fetus still has uh, detectable cardiac activity, but it's not gonna be able to make it to uh, the nine month mark uh, to, to birth. Or, or also cases in which the fetus has uh, a condition that is untreatable and the, the fetus will not survive even after uh, birth. Um, it does, however, include an exception for medical emergencies that may affect uh, the women, but it doesn't really list which emergencies these are, and it's really hard to know what constitutes an emergency under the law because some cases of emergencies that can occur uh, when a woman is uh, pregnant are very clearly, very clearly endanger the woman's uh, life if she pursues the, uh, the pregnancy, but some other emergencies are not as clear cut as emergency, the immediate life and death, that there's an immediate life and death threat to the woman. So some of the factual implications of the law are that um, 
of course, abortions are, are, are uh, like I said, abortions are going to be are uh, prohibited uh, after a heartbeat is detected. And part of what this means is that uh, a lot, many, many women will be affected by this law and are currently being affected by this law. And we'll talk about that, uh, I think, a little bit later. But um, for instance, uh, in Texas last year, 80% of the abortions that uh, clinics performed uh, were done at uh, eight weeks or less of gestation. So a substantial number of those abortions would have been illegal under this law because again, the heartbeat is detected usually as at the six week mark. And another aspect that, um, Another factual implication that this, this uh, law has is that because anyone who, quote, aids and abets a woman in seeking an abortion can be sued, uh, it means that basically anyone who assists the woman in any way can be sued. And there's no way of knowing exactly who it's going to be. Because the law states that this includes um, people that pay or reimburse the cost of an abortion performed after the heartbeat is detected uh, through insurance or through any other means. But again, the, the, the possibilities of this are virtually endless because like I said before, the law states that the person can be sued wh whether they knew or should have known, which we're, it's not clear what that means, that the woman was uh, going to pursue an abortion. So one example of, of this is, for example, Lyft and Uber drivers that drive a woman to an abortion clinic could potentially be sued. And, and Lyft actually uh, issued a, a, a very interesting statement uh, to this fact. And uh, also, for instance, uh, administrative staff at the abortion clinic, for instance, a secretary or someone that checks in patients can be sued as well because technically they are uh, aiding in the abortion. Uh, friends of the woman getting the abortion, family members, anyone that gives any kind of help or basically even knows that the woman is getting an abortion can potentially be sued. Uh, and another, I think another um, issue with, with this and another implication that what's gonna happen with this law is that it's gonna be driving abortions after six weeks to clandestinity. And this is a very important point, I think, because there's a lot of implications what it means to drive abortion to clandestinity. For, for, for instance, women are gonna be, as they call, as they say, like self-managing their own abortions if they need to have an abortion after the six week mark. And this can be done using pills, uh, but usually when a woman uh, self-manages an abortion using uh, medication, she needs to be under the supervision of a doctor. Otherwise it can be really, really dangerous. And of course, because a doctor is, it can potentially be sued for assisting uh, a woman in managing her own abortion, that is very unlikely to happen. So the woman is left on her own means to do that. And there are of course, many other worse uh, means of uh, uh, performing abortions that are really, really not safe for the woman that happen when abortion is driven into clandestinity. Because I think that abortions after six weeks are, six weeks are not gonna cease to exist uh, 
they just will be carried out in a much less uh, safe way. And it will have really, really bad consequences to the women. And I think, yes. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, I was just gonna say that also this, this heartbeat standard, it's kind of, it's problematic for many reasons, but one of them is that at the six week mark, the, the woman would necessarily know that she's pregnant. So like to put it, to do the math a little bit, six weeks pregnant is only two weeks after a woman misses, misses her period, which is not a lot, especially because not every woman has the same uh, clockwork cycle of 28 days. And there's a lot to say on that, on how that works. But, uh, and also clinical symptoms of a pregnancy don't usually appear until after the six weeks for the, the nausea, the fatigue, and, and all these, these symptoms of pregnancy. And this will also affect disproportionately uh, women that are lower income uh, because they, it's really expensive. Like, I'm not sure what they expect women to do if they expect to um, women to have pregnancy tests um, every month, just in case. Um, on how many tests they expect women to perform. Um, and, and what really do they expect, like have these incredible expenses to check every month, like several times a month, if they are pregnant. I, it's, it's really, it's, I don't know how they, they think this is actually viable for a woman to do. I don't know what they expect women to do. I have a few thoughts about what they expect them to do. So it, you, you mentioned previously, Agustina, that abortions are still going to happen. They're just not going to be as uh, safe. And I think that that's often the case. But sometimes I think there's just not going to be as many abortions available. And so one of the things that they expect women to do is to have babies. They expect them to have, to, to bring the, the the child to term against their will, even though they don't want to assume or don't think they're ready to assume the responsibility of being a parent. Uh, it, it amounts to shutting off access to what may well be a life-saving medical procedure by force, which then uh, amounts to forcing a woman to have uh, to go into labor. That's, that's really what this is. And for someone who doesn't want a child, Forcing, someone, forcing them to go into labor, which is itself a painful uh, procedure, probably the most painful thing that any woman will ever go through in life, it amounts then to a kind of forcing them into a kind of physical torture. And I think that's important. It's important to keep that image in mind because that, that's one of the things that they expect women to do. The other option that uh, they would expect is that women don't have sex. So uh, I think you can, you can get this just from the fact that there are there would be so many extra precautions and checks and tests that the woman would have to engage in if they wanted to be having sex, uh, then to make sure that they're not actually pregnant and to make sure uh, if they're pregnant, they're pregnant in time and that they have like a two week window basically uh, between when they might first be able to detect a pregnancy and then when it's no longer legal to do it. Uh, so they, they either expect them to carry this very heavy burden of checking or, or really realistically, they expect them not to have sex. Uh, and this isn't just speculation on my part. 
the the person who is the legal architect of the law, a lawyer named Jonathan Mitchell, was actually quoted directly. Uh, in this case, I, I read an article in the UK's paper, The Guardian, saying women can control their reproductive lives without access to abortion. They can do so by refraining from sexual intercourse. So uh, it's it's either abstinence or or have a lot of babies is is what they expect of women. And in either case, what they're expecting of women is to not be concerned with the pursuit of their own happiness. Um, this, uh, as you mentioned, Augustina, that that this would impact a lot of women in Texas, and uh, I think you can easily predict that. And the predictions have already borne true. Um, there have been reports now of uh, many women flocking to uh, get abortions out of state, which is a which is a non-trivial thing because Texas is a huge state. Uh, I mean, sometimes it takes 10, 10 to 12 hours just to drive across the whole thing. Uh, and that's not even much of a panacea because many, if not most of the bordering states themselves have abortion restrictions. Louisiana has like a 24 to 48 hour waiting period. That's the closest state for many who are in the populated parts of the state in the East. Uh, so just to plan it and then to deal with the fact that now all these other women are trying to get abortions there. I read a story uh, recently that said there's something like a five week wait period now in Louisiana just to get uh, just to get an abortion in the in the in the one or two small clinics in Shreveport close to the border where they can get them. Uh, so that leaves many the option they can take a plane, they can fly to a state where there uh, is less waiting time. Colorado is getting a lot of these right now. But as you mentioned, that's an option that not many women can afford, or even if they can afford the money, they can't necessarily afford to take the time that it's going to take uh, to do that. So uh, there were stories, I'm in Texas right now, and there were stories about how many of the local clinics were basically jam-packed with customers right up until midnight uh, this, the, the night before the law took effect. And then anyone who wasn't able to get in under that deadline was basically just out of luck. So it's, it's already had a massive impact on people's lives. And uh, we'll talk about why this, I mean, I think just, just from that, I think you should be able to get a sense of the, the stakes here and the degree of the injustice. We'll talk a little bit more about the philosophic aspect of that shortly, but it is worth mentioning that this has not gone unchallenged. Uh, the, the, the Supreme Court did decide not to enjoin this, and we'll talk about why that they were able to make that decision later, but there has now been uh, at least one doctor who decided to violate the law purposefully and to give an abortion to a woman who uh, wouldn't be allowed to have an abortion. Uh, his name was Dr. Alan Braid. He wrote a story about his decision in the Washington Post uh, he's a, a abortion doctor in San Antonio. If you look up, um, uh, the article was uh, September 18th, and there have already been uh, consequences for him because of that decision, which we'll we'll get to soon. So yeah, this is having huge impacts on on women's lives, and and especially if other states start to copy this kind of law without any kind of intervention by the judiciary, it's going to have impacts on women all over America. Yes, and one thing I might add, even if a woman uh, uh, finds out that she's pregnant within that six week window, uh, first of all, it, it's 
before this law, from what I read, it was already hard to get an appointment uh, right away to have a procedure. But especially now, if they find out on if somehow they're like super lucky, let's say, and they find out on week four, it takes a long time to schedule that abortion. And they might, because they also have to have an ultrasound first. And uh, it, 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 will, it might be the case that they, by the time they're able to schedule their abortions, it's already too late. It's past the six week mark, it's past the, the point where the fetus would have a heartbeat. So it yeah. makes it really, really impossible for women to get an abortion basically at all. And so this is why I think it's important to emphasize that while it's true that some of these abortions may be driven underground and uh, you know women take matters into their own hands and it's unsafe, that's true and it's significant and should be considered. It's also just true a lot of abortions are gonna stop happening because of that. And women are gonna have to deal with the consequences. They're either going to have to raise children that they didn't want to raise uh, or they'll put them up for adoption to, you know, and, and just, you know, cross their fingers, hoping that someone takes care of the child. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then Ben, you mentioned uh, the doctor that, uh, that was sued um, already under this uh, new, new law. And one of the things that I think is important to, to, to mention is the 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 type of like like our title uh, of the podcast can say is like the the vigilante justice that uh, is expected uh, that that this um, that this law actually foments in people um, because I think but because like like I like we we've, we've been saying anyone they can bring any person literally in Texas or outside of Texas can bring a civil lawsuit against uh, an abortion practitioner or a woman uh, that is that, that had an abortion after this uh, six-week mark. Um, so I think what this does is that it foments the worst people to go hunting for healthcare professionals and uh, anyone who made, as the law says, aid or abet an abortion um, as evidenced by, by this person that just sued at this doctor because, and he said like he basically, he wanted to challenge the law, but also he wanted the, the $10,000 reward basically. And actually I think it is Justice Sotomayor in, the, in her uh, dissent in the Supreme Court uh, when uh, the court refused to issue an injunction for, for this law. She says that it, uh, what it does is incentivize people to act as bounty hunt hunters. Uh, because the, the the cash price is so big and they the people are just literally that's what's been happening and actually i think it was today uh, two more people uh came up with with, with lawsuits uh to, because they want the money and they are just trying to figure out uh who they can sue and they just start hunting women and hunting uh medical professionals and anyone who may assist in abortion to get that 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 reward and it, it's the worst elements of society that are going to take it i think are going to take advantage of this law uh but but also i think this type of vigilante justice thing is it has a chilling effect uh for exercising abortion rights and we have already said that it's already incredibly hard to receive an abortion even if the woman finds out that she's pregnant really early uh because the threat of litigation of being sued can come from literally anywhere. And 
like I, like I had said before, a lot of people can be sued under this law. For instance, uh, one of the things that um, I had mentioned, uh, Lyft drivers and, and Uber drivers, uh, technically, if they drive a woman to an abortion clinic, they can technically be sued uh, under this law. And what, what, what will that cause? Like, what, one of the things that Lyft said in its, uh, in its uh, they issued like, like a message of all this law is that they don't want their drivers to stop responding to calls from women in general, but specifically women that may be going to uh, an, a healthcare appointment at, a, at a, a woman's clinic, whether it is to get an abortion or not, because it opens them up to a lawsuit. So they don't know when they are, they might or might not be committing a crime. So it, 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 it's a chilling effect on everyone and an abortion practitioner, practitioners as well, obviously, and anyone that works at, an, uh, at a woman's healthcare clinic. Um, so this is really uh, this this is really terrible, and it does, I think, in fact and in practice, any chance that a woman could have of of getting an abortion, even in the early stages, the very very early stages within the six weeks of the pregnancy. So um, to to talk a little bit about what what um, what happened. Um, here with, with the Supreme Court that, uh, and this is when we started hearing about this case more like on, more prominently on the news was that the Supreme Court refused to issue a preliminary injunction against the, the enforcement of, of this, new, this new law. And because the new law gives private uh, citizens the power to enforce the law and not, I mean, state officials are, completely set aside in this law so they cannot enforce state officials cannot enforce this law as is the case with most uh, or all of other uh, abortion uh, legislation so because it gives the power to private citizens to enforce the law an injunction cannot be issued because there's no not a specific person or entity or organization that can be identified as a willing to enforce the law at, at any given time and part of what this does, I think, and first of all, this I think this law is utterly evil, but it is, it is very smart in the sense that it figured out a way to escape getting a preliminary injunction. And I think that this sets actually a very dangerous precedent on how to circumvent preliminary injunctions for laws that may for any kind of other laws that may violate constitutional rights. And this, this type of trickery of, uh, let's say, legislative, legislative uh, trickery can be used for any other cause. Like I read an article uh, on the Volokh conspiracy that says, well, you know, either like Democrats and, and, and Republicans can start using this law, this type of um, enforcement to avoid injunctions for any kind of law. For instance, gun rights, uh, they can be potentially banned the same way, like literally anything to circumvent these, uh, these preliminary injunctions. And it is, like many have said also, it is a tool to evade judicial review. So um, it is, it's really, uh, it's really evil, and, and like again, I think it sets a very dangerous uh, precedent. Precedent. However, I do think that the Supreme Court's decision was consistent with its own jurisprudence. Um, 
but I, I really hope that this, this law really gets challenged now that there has been uh, lawsuits and we can, we can solve the, the and I, I really hope that it gets struck down, but it's not clear that it will be the case here. And so you, you mentioned that the one thing that seemed to be unprecedented about the law was this kind of bounty hunting enforcement mechanism. And I think that's largely true. There are cases of laws in other states uh, that allow third parties to sue on behalf of endangered species or, or different uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the interests of various environmental uh, interests. But what's different here is that in those cases, even though it's got a kind of sort of similar enforcement mechanism, the enforcement mechanism was designed as you, as you suggest for the purpose of evading uh, the possibility of judicial review. And I think it's worth underscoring just how deleterious that kind of manipulation is to the rule of law and to the objectivity of law. And you can see it from the really kind of uh, fluid, ill-defined terms that uh, are given for who can sue and who can be sued. And you mentioned some of this, but it's really worth uh, amplifying it a bit. So for one thing uh, about who can do the suing, any, it's the only people who are not allowed to sue are the, gov the very government, government officials who uh, they don't want to have, uh, they don't want to be held responsible so that no one can sue them. But aside from that, it's deuce is wild. Anyone, anyone can sue and anyone in Texas, anyone out of Texas, any number of people. Uh, so the first person who filed a lawsuit against the, the doctor who is starting the test case as you mentioned, was this? Uh, he's a he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer who's a convicted felon who's currently do, serving his sentence at home. Who kind of makes a living uh, from filing frivolous lawsuits, even though he's currently serving a sentence. Uh, he's not even. He says he's not even opposed to abortion, but that he thought he should be able to get ten thousand dollar bounty just like anybody else. Uh, and he doesn't live in Texas. He lives in Arkansas. And uh, there was another one from Illinois, I think, who, who filed a lawsuit. So no, no limitations as to how many people can sue the same one party or where they need to be or what their relationship on behalf of the, uh, of the, of the woman or the fetus or anything. So it's complete deuces wild. And the same thing goes for the people who are being sued. The, the, here, the only exclusion as to who can be sued is, is the woman herself. And that's, I think, also for cynical purposes because they want to try to avoid the, the Planned Parenthood v. Casey standard that it shouldn't pose an undue burden uh, on the woman. Uh, but and anything else is, is, uh, is free game, um, any aider or a better. And what, it, what counts as aiding and abetting is, as you, as you pointed out, ill-defined. Uh, the only exclusion there is that it, it's the, the law says that nothing should be construed as a violate as undermining the First Amendment. So presumably, uh, this means that we can offer, say, our moral support to the women by our speech if we're doing a podcast saying that this law should be overturned and they should be able to get abortions. But that's it, and that's that's interesting when you think about uh, the the way that uh, many of the people who favor this law usually think about other issues, like if you know about the Citizens United case about campaign 
finance laws. A lot of the people who supported the campaign, uh, who supported Citizens United and who did so because they thought I should be able not only to speak up on behalf of my favorite candidate, but I don't know, make a donation. Uh, and that there shouldn't be this dichotomy between uh, my my personal views and the resources that I spend in support of these views. And yet this law would seem to make it illegal, not just to offer the moral support in verbal form, but to pay to help the woman get the abortion, to help her get out of state, to travel somewhere uh, where it's it's permitted. So there's a real double standard here. And, you know, it, it, even in the case of what if you are like me and not only are you giving this podcast, but let's say you happen to just give a donation to an organization that gives money to women who are trying to get uh, abortions out of state. And I announced this publicly on a podcast. I guess now I am subject to the lawsuit as well. And it's not even like, I don't know if that money is actually going to do, uh, going to have that effect. But the law even says, uh, as long as you intend for it to have that effect, that you are subject to this lawsuit. And guess what? My intention is for it to have that effect. So I, I guess someone can sue me now. We'll see what happens if anybody's watching. But uh, it's, it's truly, I mean, we called this vigilante injustice. And I would say that it's not exactly vigilanteism in the sense that while it's true that the main enforcement mechanism is left up to private parties to file lawsuits, of course, the lawsuit then has to go to a court and the judge has to rule on it. And then depending on what the judge decides, someone's going to owe money and presumably the, the law enforcement would kick in at that point to make sure the person pays the money that's owed. Otherwise, there would be no point in sending it to a court. So the idea that there is no that there's ultimately no state enforcement mechanism is really a kind of political theater that's designed to be a kind of excuse that people can use in legal argumentation. Uh, and of course, it's meant to delay the to delay the day when this would ultimately uh, be taken to court, because ultimately some state player would have to come into the situation in order to enforce the, the judge's decision. But what the effect of all of this is, is again to undermine the rule of law, uh, which conservatives are otherwise always saying is so important. It's, it's the thing that they invoke uh, on uh, the why they support the uh, the drug war and why they're against immigration, but we see that that's clearly not the case here because they're basically empowering uh, private citizens to be the police detectives who are charged with finding the evidence of the crime. They're they're charged. They're, they're being uh, allowed the opportunity basically to be prosecutors. Uh, these are roles that are usually reserved for government officials because that helps enable. Uh, some semblance of objectivity and rule of law, where there are rules that the detectives and the prosecutors have to abide by in their investigations and in the cases that they're making. There are standards of evidence that they're held to uh, as to whether a, a case is ever even brought before a judge in the first place. I should also mention the interesting point that there are ways in which the, the law even tries to take the responsibility of rendering a just decision by a judge or a jury out of the hands of the judge and the jury, because the law is written in such a way as to preclude certain kinds of defenses on behalf of defendants that would ordinarily be given. So for instance, I mentioned earlier the Planned Parenthood v. Casey standard that uh, Roe v. Wade has to be interpreted as 
uh, as not putting an undue burden on a woman's ability to provide an abortion. Well, this law even has a whole subsection where it defines what it thinks does and doesn't count as an affirmative defense on Casey grounds, where it says uh, that you won't prove it's an undue burden uh, if a, a reward of a leaf will prevent a woman uh, from, a, uh, sorry, where it won't, uh, it won't establish undue burden if you merely demonstrate that an award of relief will prevent women from obtaining support or assistance, financial or otherwise. So it's doing all of the interpreting for the judge here, which, or it's presuming to do that, uh, even though I don't really think that's what, uh, what a law, especially a state law, can do. The state law isn't in a position to interpret uh, co constitutional law, but it's, it's pretending that it has the ability to do that. Basically, the way that it's set up is to is to make it seem the only woman who would ever have standing to sue the government for having infringed on her right to an abortion is the woman who's had the baby, who, who's, who's been effectively prevented from having the abortion, now has the baby, now has to sue for, she can't sue for injunctive relief because of course she's already had the baby. Uh, she can sue, I guess, for damages, but the child's already there. So uh, we called this, vigilante injustice, because it's not even, the problem isn't even here that it's empowering uh, citizens to take the law into their own hands where the law would be a just law. It's not a just law to begin with. And you can see that from uh, not only the, all the effects that it has on the women, uh, and, but also from the, the non-objectivity of the whole affair, of the way that it undercuts the rule of law. There can't be a just law that takes the objectivity out of a law and uh, turns it into the rule of men as opposed to the rule of law, where there's no way that anybody can tell what's legal and what isn't legal, what, what is and isn't legal, and where uh, citizens are now given the power of judge, jury, and almost even executioner. But uh, that's the one thing that they, uh, that they don't quite give. Yeah, and that's one of the hallmarks, let's say, of a non-objective law. As, as uh, Ayn Rand called it, because people don't know in advance of taking an action whether that action is going to be uh, a crime and uh, what actually the law is forbidding them to do and, and why it's forbidding them to do that. Um, and it, it goes back to what you said about if I give uh, money to uh, an abortion clinic, a donation, am I going to be uh, open to a lawsuit? There's, there's just the lack of objectivity of this law is, is just outstanding, really. So I wonder, maybe uh, a good way to transition to the next main topic that we wanted to just discuss, because I see in the chat on YouTube that a lot of people are saying, are, are, are asking questions about, but isn't, isn't this a just law because it prevents killing a baby? And so, I mean, that's something we should we should tackle head on, because the other big issue here is that explains why this is vigilante injustice, is because that's not true, and uh, the we should talk about the way the law uh, pretends as though it is, and and the standards that it uses to do it. And so, uh, let's 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 go to that. Yeah. So, like we've been saying, uh, the standard, like the 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 heart when a heartbeat is detected in the fetus, 
that's when uh, up like when that happens after that which again usually happens around six weeks uh the woman is forbidden from getting an abortion but one of the things that I, I keep wondering is why is that the standard? Why is the reason why the heartbeat should be a standard? Why is a heartbeat different from non-heartbeat, if that makes any sense? Um, why is the line not drawn at a clearly uh, objective uh, part of the pregnancy, which is actually the birth of a child, because rights start when the, when the fetus becomes an actual child, a baby, and that happens when it, it is actually born. And so I do not really understand this arbitrariness of the heartbeat standard, and I suspect one of the reasons why this is a standard is because it happens uh, quite early in the pregnancy, so all these uh, all these implications that have, that we have been discussing now for for the entirety of the podcast, this like the, this standard allows for I mean not allows actually uh, makes it so women cannot actually get an abortion, and it's extremely extremely hard to get an abortion before that uh, standard is met. And this also, uh, like I said. Rights begin at birth, and Rand, Rand, Ayn Rand had a had a particular in view about this, which is you cannot confuse a potential with an actual, because she says an embryo has absolutely no rights, because rights do not belong to a potential human being, only belong to an actual human being. And the only actual human being here is the woman who is pregnant, not the fetus inside of her. And a child cannot acquire any rights until he or she is born. And one of the things that uh, Rand really took issue with is the fact that uh, in, in this, for for people that are anti-abortion, like the potential, someone that is not yet a, a human life, a, someone who has rights that is actually living life here on Earth, uh, the unborn takes precedence over the life of actual people with uh, with heartbeats and a brain that are actually that actually do have rights and that are actually living in the in this world. That to me, I think, and Ben, you can talk more about this. This uh, you have written extensively about Ayn Rand's position in abortion, but I think her point is is I think her point is right. And if you can, you, maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, there's a there's a a long discussion to be had about what individual rights are and. Uh, to, to what kind of entities they apply. It's something that I've written a lot about. We'll give you more resources at the end of the episode about more things that you can read. But the long story short is that in Ayn Rand's view, which I agree with, uh, indiv uh, individual rights belong to individuals. They belong to individual human beings, individual rational animals who are capable of autonomous action in the world. And a fetus is not individuated from its mother. It is 
physically and physiologically dependent on the mother. Now, of course, because it is has a certain human genetic code, it has the potential uh, to become an individual human being. But as you've, as you've, I think, rightly stressed, having that potential does not mean that it is actually a human being yet. Uh, there's a real metaphysical difference there. An acorn is a potential oak, but it is not an actual oak. It is not any kind of tree at all. Uh, that's even though it's got the genetic code of an oak. Uh, it doesn't have the genetic code of a maple or of a cactus. That's true, but that the, its genetics is simply its potential. And if you look at this Texas law, you can see that the, the, the reason that they're appealing to the heartbeat as the significant milestone, and you ask the question of why that milestone as opposed to so many others, isn't it arbitrary? And the, I think the most that you can get from them as to what's so significant about it is there's a line in the bill that says, fetal heartbeat has become a key medical predictor that an unborn child will reach live birth. So basically they're saying it's, it's a sign of a more robust potential than what you had at say conception, but it's just a sign and, it, and even by their own terms, that's, that's all that it is. If you look at other parts of the law, you'll see that they don't even think it's that significant of a milestone because there's a line in the law that says, this subchapter does not create or recognize a right to abortion before a fetal, a fetal heartbeat is detected. So it's clearly being written in a way that's compatible with thinking that all you need to have rights is the potential, the genetic potential that comes merely from being conceived at the moment of conception, which uh, really, I think, drives home the absurdity of this viewpoint. The fact that it's being pegged to, heart, to the heartbeat, I think, is just a kind of political ploy uh, you know, to probably to gin up emotionalistic responses in favor of this law because there's all this propaganda about how abortion stops a beating heart and the heart sounds like it's uh, you know so important to the human being which it is when it's a when it's an individual uh, entity but of course what we're talking about here is nothing very much like uh, an actual human heartbeat um, so and as as I think you've stressed as well Agustina the what happens when you put a law like this into effect is in the name of a mere potential, you know, potentially in the name of the, of the potential at conception, what you're doing is you're saying this actual human, human being, the woman who has a, a full-fledged heartbeat as well as a brain and feelings and plans and hopes and dreams that her life has to be sacrificed for the sake of this sub- living this this sub entity which is what it actually is and the the funny thing is that there the way the law is written implicitly recognizes that that is an awful thing because as i mentioned before it specifically says the woman is not going to be subject to this kind of civil suit only the people who are helping her but if you were really convinced that the that an entity had rights from conception and that it was wrong to kill it, what possible logic could lead you to think the woman shouldn't be punished as well? She's obviously the one who's making the decision. It's true that she's not performing the procedure, but she's paying somebody to do it or she's asking someone to do it. And 
you know, when you, if you're, if you hire a hitman to kill someone for you, you're usually the one who's more guilty than the hitman. So the, there, there's no logic that would allow the woman to be exempt from responsibility here. That exemption by this law is just another political ploy because they know that if they actually put, if they actually sue the woman or, you know, in other laws, put the woman in jail or find some way to punish her, the, the injustice of it will just be so obvious to everybody that there, there would be a, a revolt. And so the fact that they don't have that in there, I think reveals they know it's wrong and they are just trying to use this as a kind of political theater to score points with uh, their political base, which is just odious. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is um, what worries me. I mean, I, I guess ever since Roe v. Wade, there have been attempts to uh, further regulate the right uh, to abortion by states. Um, but I find it really, I, I worry about the regress in the US generally and so many states trying to, to pass, like that have been trying for many, many years to pass laws to uh, restrict the access to abortion or to factually ban it altogether. Like I think is the case with, with this law because in practice it's basically what it does. Um, but you have been, uh, Ben, you have been following this topic and it's one of your areas of expertise. So can you say a little bit more about the, 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 the regress in the US in general and these states that are trying to, um, to pass legislation to restrict abortion and, and what, what that looks like right now? Sure. I mean, I, I do follow this fairly closely, but even though I follow it, it's it's gotten to the point where it's hard to keep track of all of it, just because there are so many different states passing so many different restrictions that are aimed at undermining abortion rights in America. Um, there have been there have been various personhood amendments that people have tried to pass defining a newly conceived embryo as as a person with rights. None of those have really succeeded. There have been a number of heartbeat bills where uh, life, uh, human life is defined as beginning with a heartbeat and outlawing abortions after that, like this one, but without the enforcement mechanism. And so most of those have been struck down uh, because they were able to get an injunction against the government, the state that was trying to enforce them, unlike this one. Uh, there have been all kinds of waiting period laws and different kinds of regulations imposed on on abortion providers to make it simply uh, too impossible, too, too expensive for them to be able to stay in business, like requiring that different abortion providers have admitting privileges at hospitals where the state, state governments know that the hospitals aren't going to give them admitting privileges, even though they don't really need those admitting privileges, because as it turns out, abortion is much safer uh, than a lot of other medical procedures, including safer than childbirth. So uh, there's the, I've lost count of all of the laws, but what's ominous right now is that this Texas law comes in an atmosphere where there's a real shift uh, on the judiciary at the Supreme Court in favor of figures who are skeptical of Roe v. Wade, who are looking for excuses to overturn it, uh, and states who are sensitive to that fact and who are experimenting with all kinds of new anti-abortion laws in the hopes that they will uh, that they will get a pass from the judiciary. And so there are already other states like Florida, Indiana, Arkansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Mississippi, which are uh, talking about 
putting together copycat versions of the Texas law. And of course, that's in the background of a, of a case that's already pending in the Supreme Court, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, where there's a book, there's a law on the books that basically passed, that basically bans all abortions after 15 weeks. And that's well before the period of uh, viability that Roe v. Wade uh, drew as a line uh, before which the woman should have a right to abortion. So that case is, the, the Supreme Court has taken it up. They are going to be having oral arguments in December. And that's the one that everyone's watching. It's hard to know what's going to happen to the Texas law in the meantime, given that it's got this ingenious uh, mechanism for evading judicial review. We'll see what happens with that uh, doctor who's being sued, whether he's able to bring some kind of uh, test case. The one other thing that I would cite as a relevant equation, a relevant factor to consider in this equation is there is now legislation in the US Congress being spearheaded by Democrats called the Women's Health Protection Act. And the thing about uh, abortion law in the United States is that it's largely driven by the judiciary. It's, it's driven by Supreme Court interpretation of the Constitution, and on that basis, overturning state laws that oppose abortion rights. Uh, but there's never been an equivalent of a federal law saying abortion rights must be protected. Uh, on the model of something like the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, um, and that's, that's what the architects of the Women's Health Protection Act want to try to do. It would have the effect of encoding uh, the, the women's rights in law. And it's just that it's, it's, it's very uncertain that they would be able to pass this through the, the current Congress, especially through the Senate. So there is a pretty uncertain future that we're looking at here for women's abortion rights in America. And uh, to me, it seems, especially given the fact that, and we'll talk about this in a moment, given the fact that there is such weak philosophic defense of abortion rights on behalf of those constituencies that are usually there to defend them, erosion of these rights and, and, and erosion of Roe v. Wade, if not a complete overturning of Roe at this point, seems to be inevitable. Yes, I, I think so. I think so too. And um, I, I, I feel like, like I said, this regression of uh, what might, might happen in the future. And um, you, you showed me um, a clip by um, Ayn Rand where she talks about this, this issue herself recently. Yeah, let's, let's go to that because this, I think, is, she does a good, this is a clip taken from a talk she gave in 1981. It was a talk about the Reagan administration's views on abortion, of which she was very critical. She was very critical of the administration in large part because of its views on abortion. This is also one of the last talks that she gave uh, in her life. And so I think what you get here is a, is a good picture of her mature view on this topic and why she thought it mattered so much. And, and it also gives you a good view of how she thought of the people who, who supported these laws against abortion. So let's listen to the clip. The question of abortion is much wider than the termination of a pregnancy. It is a question of the entire life of the parents. As I have said before, 
Parenthood is an enormous responsibility. It is an impossible responsibility for young people who are ambitious and struggling, but, but poor, particularly if they are intelligent and conscientious. For such young people, pregnancy is literally a death sentence. Parenthood would force them to give up their future and condemn them to a life of hopeless drudgery of slavery to a child's physical and financial needs. The situation of an unwed mother abandoned by her lover is even worse. I cannot quite imagine the state of mind of a person who would wish to condemn a fellow human being to such a horror. I cannot project the degree of hatred required to make those women run around in crusades against abortion. Hatred is what they certainly project, not love for the embryos, which is a piece of nonsense no one could experience, but hatred, a virulent hatred for an unnamed object. By the degree of this women's intensity, I would say that to them, it is an issue of self-esteem and that their fear is metaphysical. Their hatred is directed against human beings as such, against the mind, against reason, against ambition, against success, against love, against any values that brings happiness to human life. In compliance with the dishonesty that dominates today's intellectual field, they call themselves pro-life. I think there's a lot to pay attention to there, especially when we think about what's necessary to, to stave off the worst future that you can imagine in, 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 on this subject. Um, because you don't hear, you don't hear uh, liberal defenders of abortion rights speaking in the kinds of terms that Ayn Rand does. You don't hear them condemning the other side as, as very often having an evil motive, uh, hatred for life, and everything that's important about human life. Uh, you certainly don't hear them defending the woman's right to an abortion in principled terms, understanding that you know, from an understanding where it's only the woman who has individual rights and where the fetus does not, because the fetus isn't an individual. And I mean, that, the note that she sounds at the end there, I think is especially important, that it's especially important not to let the anti-abortion critics off the hook by conceding to them the descriptor pro-life, because if if life if life is worth valuing as a human being, it's human life that's worth valuing, and human life is something very distinctive. It's the life of a living, thinking, breathing, acting, hoping, dreaming individual. Uh, something that does not hold of an embryo or a fetus, except in in its potential, which is not yet actualized. And so, I think. I think what defenders of abortion rights need is that kind of moral fire. And the fact that they don't have it, the fact that they are often defensive, that they say things like, I think there should be fewer abortions, but women should still have a choice, is a big part of the reason why uh, they're losing this argument and why these rights are being eroded. Yes, I think that is exactly right. Um, so we have only a few minutes left. Do you want to go to questions, Ben? We should definitely take some questions. And I, I've highlighted a few that have already popped. Well, actually, before I look at the questions, let's thank a number of people for super chat donations. Uh, Jonathan thanks us for our scholarship. You're very welcome. Mary Lean 
had some comments along with her thank yous. Uh, she says uh, $10,000 from the government for a snitch. That's obscene. I, I think you're onto something, Marilene. Uh, and also she mentions the psychological damage of having a child you didn't want must be immense. Even if the child is given up for adoption, it would be torture. And that's one of the things I think that Ayn Rand emphasizes in that, in the, that excerpt that we just looked at. Uh, Robert also asked a super chat question. How do we rescue the moral slash meta-ethical concept of the sanctity of life from the anti-abortionists and fully validate and support it? Um, that's a good question and it connects to the last thing that I was talking about, about how you shouldn't cede to the anti-abortion critics the title of pro-life. Uh, I actually wrote an article uh, called, for New Ideal called uh, Abortion Protects What's Sacred About Life or something to that effect. I'm, I'm not getting the exact title right. Uh, but it's it's on new ideal and it, it's it's this is one of the things that I talk about in the article. Abortion allows women to protect what's sacred about life. That was May twentieth, twenty nineteen. I can't say that um, this what I talk about in this article is is a definitive or exhaustive answer to Robert's question, but it's it's maybe a place to start with. If you'd like more, which of these other questions do you think we should we should address next? Um, there's this question that says, wouldn't the outcome of this law ultimately increase the value of human life and importance of sexual education? Do you want to get started with that? It, it, do you have thoughts first before I do? Um, I, I have thoughts, yes, particularly in the issue that this person brings up about the importance of sexual education. Uh, there is obviously a, a problem with um, with sexual education for both men and women. Uh, a lot of uh, there, there's a lack of appropriate sexual education. What is interesting is that, to put it lightly, I guess, uh, is that many of the people that are against abortion are also really against sexual like uh, comprehensive sexual education in schools um, and they uh, many of them like the architect of this law what they actually want is not sexual education it's just abstinence which <laughs> that that is not sexual education telling a woman or a man that he or she has to abstain from from having sex is does nothing for sexual education. But also even, it's not all a matter of sexual education. These pregnancies that happen are not because the woman doesn't know how to use contraceptives or how to uh, be careful when engaging in, in sexual relations with, 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 with her partner. There are many reasons why a pregnancy can still happen even if uh, the woman is using a number of contraceptive methods. So it like, we won't go a lot. In, like I don't want to go really, really into it, but there's a lot like almost like no contraceptive is 100% effective. And it can happen that it fails and the woman gets pregnant against her will or her desire to. And uh, in fact, I read when reading uh, about this topic, I read that many, many abortions, if not a majority of abortions in the US 
are uh, sought out sought by women that already have children. So, but they do they they there's an accidental pregnancy, and she does not want to have a child and another child for whatever reason. So it's not necessarily a problem of sexual education, but even when it is, the same people that are pushing anti-abortion legislation are also pushing non-sexual education or just the approach of abstinence, which has been proven time and time again that it does not work. Yeah, the, the only sense in which this law would increase the value of human life and the importance of sexual education would be on uh, definitions of the value of human life and the importance of sexual education that were completely distorted. Uh, there, there's nothing about this policy that respects human life if we understand what's special about human life. What's special about human life is the ability to make choices about your own destiny. It's something that not any other living organism can do. We, when someone is murdered, when an individual human being is murdered, the reason that we mourn for them is because we knew something about that person as an individual. We knew what they were planning to do with their life. We knew what they had already done. Or if we're a parent of a very young child, what in, in large part, uh, we know about what we've done and what we've put into their life already, the choices that we made to have them. So it's a complete aberration to say that there, there's some kind of respect for human life in this law, not what's special about human life. And as for sexual education, I think the, the only kind of sexual education that's going to come out of this law is the kind that uh, connects sex to fear, that makes, uh, that, that makes young people afraid to have sex because they know the consequences will be so terrible for their life. They'll either have to raise a child they don't want uh, or uh, they'll have to jump through endless hoops in order to get that abortion. And that's, that's, as I think you rightly stress, Augustina, that's a style of education that is designed to make sex seem evil. And it's not. Yeah, and it's not just young people that kind of don't do risk assessment or whatever, which many, many do. It's also grown people. That, but they, and women, like I, for instance, I am a... I'm a full-grown woman and I absolutely know the risks of, uh, of everything I do. But if, if I were in this situation, it would be, it would be really, again, it's not necessarily uh, just a question of irresponsibility. Like many people want to paint it all, not taking uh, responsibility for your own decisions. It's, it goes way beyond that. And it, again, it's not just uh, young people, like really young people, teenagers or people in their early 20s are affected, but grown people too that are still at an age where they can, they can have children. Let's, um, let's do at least one more question. And I think I wanna do the, the what about 10 minutes before birth question, and then we should probably wrap up. So someone asks, what about 10 minutes before birth? Is abortion okay then? First thing I want to say about this question is that it's disingenuous. Why is this question coming up when what we're talking about is, is a law that bans abortion at six weeks into pregnancy? What about that? That's, that's the real question that we are being faced with right now. It's a kind of, so it's, a, it's, a, it's at best a kind of pedantic, picky question that's aimed at testing principles. 
uh, but not even a very good one for those purposes because most of the, if if any abortions ever do happen uh, 10 minutes before birth, and I don't know that any actually do, if they do happen, they're probably going to happen because of some severe threat to the life of the woman. And most of the people who claim to oppose abortion uh, also make exceptions for the life of the woman. So in the very case that you're being picky about, I bet you'd support it too. But if you want my straightforward answer to this question, what about 10 minutes before the birth? Is abortion okay then? The woman sure as hell has the right to it. And I think that that's Ayn Rand's position because her view is that individual rights do not come into existence until a fetus is individuated, until it's born. She's very explicit about that. And that's connected to the fact that she thinks what makes human life special is its individuality. It's, it's the, the way in which human beings are autonomous and are able to govern their own lives separate from a herd or separate from the hive or separate from the, the, you know, a coral reef. That's what makes human life distinctive. And there's all kinds of questions that people will ask about, well, what is this, some magical line that happens at birth? It's not magical. It's a line that we have to draw based on what we know about how big of a difference birth makes to the life of the mother and to the life of a child. It's based on objective facts that we can look at and assess the significance of. The view that life begins at conception, that's the view that posits a magical line because there is no explanation given as, as to what's so important about uh, 46 chromosomes and, and what new magical properties suddenly appear because of that. That's the magical line view. And so if you, if you want an objective line, birth is the only one that we have. I think that is exactly right. So um, we're a little bit over time. So um, we will continue the discussion though uh, in uh, the Iron um, Rand Club in Clubhouse right after this podcast. And uh, so please join us there if you want to keep the discussion going and we will be answering questions and discussing this, this further. Um, thank you again to everyone for the super chat donations that you have sent us, like sent us, like uh, Ben said. Uh, and we have a few resources uh, for you to explore this issue more. Uh, first, we have the abortion entry on the Ayn Rand lexicon, uh, where you can find many excerpts of Ayn Rand's uh, statements about um, this issue. And we also have um, Ayn Rand's talk, which is also an essay, but I believe in campus you can hear it as a talk called Off Living Death, which, uh, in which she uh, talks about abortion and goes in depth about uh, on this issue and you can get her basically her full view in this uh, in this talk and then uh, we also have your articles Ben that are very illuminating on this issue which are uh, one of them is Ayn Rand's radical case for abortion rights and science without philosophy can't resolve the abortion debate and you can find both of those on our journal New Ideal. And uh, with that said, next week, we're gonna be discussing, well, not us, but Mike Massa, Onkar Gatte, and Nikos Sotirakopoulos are gonna be discussing the topic, is academia becoming hostile to the pursuit of truth? So next Wednesday, September 29th, 
at the same time as today, 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern. And if you are watching us on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel and uh, click the bell to get notifications when we go live. And please also like, share, and comment on these videos to help attract some attention to our channel. And also, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, please like and share the video. And also, if you have questions or comments, uh, you can email us at um, newideal at einrand.org. We uh, always read and often answer uh, all of the emails that we get. And sometimes we get suggestions uh, from you for topics to discuss in this podcast and we actually do them. So, well, with that said, thank you to the audience for joining us. Hope to see you in a few minutes in Clubhouse and thank you, Ben. Thanks, Agostino. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.